There is no doctrine harder to hear than predestination. And double predestination compounds the difficulty where it is said that God elects some for heaven and passes others over for hell. Is double predestination biblical? And biblical is key to the question. I'm not asking, do we like this doctrine? I'm not asking, is this doctrine philosophically sound? But rather, is this the truth of God's word? Is double predestination biblical? And that is an important question uh, Paul focuses on or Paul leads us to in this text this morning. It's an important question for our text. And Paul begins with a question in our text. Verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? And what shall we say about what? What shall we say about what is written? Verse 13, what do we say about God's word when God says, Jacob I loved? We can say a lot about that. We can say yes and amen. Jacob I love. We say yes to the love of God. We love it. Yes, amen. But what about, but Esau I hated. We may have a lot to say about that clause as well. It is a double predestination question. And notice here, Paul appeals to the flesh. We, what shall men, what shall we as men say? What do we say? Are we going to say, rather, really the question is this, are we going to allow God to say, Esau, I hated? Are we going to allow God this clause, Esau, I hated? And here we learn in Paul that there is much in man that does not like God. In, fa in fact, the default setting of man is to question God. Rather than question our limited knowledge, Rather than questioning that his ways are far above our ways that we cannot understand, rather we'd rather just question God than our own limited nature. And so it is here that we must keep in mind that God is more mighty than all mighties. And because he is more mighty than all mighties, he's more mighty than us, that his ways are far above our ways. And there should be a, uh, an approach to this question of humility. We should come to this question of double predestination with some fear. An appropriate fear of the Lord or some humility that might cause us to say, hey, what does God's word say? And I'll believe it. That really is the fear of the Lord. It's an absolute trust in God's word. That's the wisdom of the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is an absolute trust in God's word. And so the fear of the Lord leads us to sola scriptura. To answer this question, scripture alone should answer this question, is double predestination biblical? And here we also do well, when dealing with solar scripture, we do well to recognize that we should avoid all temptation to revise the text. Because that's what people will do with these texts. They'll revise the text to make it say something that's a little bit more palatable. Or revise the text so that we can hear it. And ultimately, just hearing ourselves speak back to ourselves. 
That's what many do with this text, this clause, Esau, I hated. They'll revise it. They'll say, well, this text actually means Esau, I didn't love as much. It's not Esau, I hated, but Esau, I didn't love as much because, frankly, he just wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing it for me. He wasn't meeting the standards. I just didn't didn't like this guy. But Jacob, on the other hand, you know, whoa, what a great guy. I can get behind that guy. I can choose a guy like that. I can love a guy like that. Others will actually, others have actually said of this text that this text, this Esau I have hated, others have actually said, other scholars have said, this is thoroughly immoral. And therefore, isn't the word of God, but rather probably added by some church heretic. Some heretic added this back in the day. Don't believe it. The Bible would never say something like this. And so either way, those who deny this text or those who adjust it, they have a standard of judgment against predestination that meets their own assumptions and standards of logic. It's basically, we say so, so God says so. We don't like that, so God doesn't like that. But in the Reformed Church, we think God's thoughts after him. We think God's thoughts after him. And those thoughts, there may be things that God says that we don't completely understand. Yet we say, Amen. And this is our sacred rule. And Calvin said it best of this rule. He said, I quote, We seek to know nothing concerning predestination except what Scripture teaches us. When the Lord closes his holy mouth, let us also stop the way that we may not go farther. Basically, Calvin says here, if God says it, we confess it. And there's more to this rule here. We believe, even, we believe it. The word of God, even if it doesn't satisfy our curiosity. We don't try to peel back the curtain on the holy of holies to look into the throne room of God to investigate truths that God hasn't revealed. To answer the question, why God? If God doesn't give us an answer, we don't peer back with speculation and philosophy to find the answer ourselves. To pry back heaven's gates to search for an answer. We believe that if it's concealed from us, then it's concealed for a reason. And we trust what is revealed. And we go no further. We trust what is revealed. We also trust what is concealed. We don't go no further. Our minds and our hearts are instructed by the words of God, by the word of God, and by the word of God alone. This rule does not apply to our private interpretation, which is solo scriptura. I'm not affirming solo scriptura, but sola scriptura. You see, sola scriptura affirms the necessity of the church for the word of God that instructs us, the very word of God that teaches us also commands us to obey our leaders, to obey the church, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So, for example, this doctrine of predestination was affirmed by the church in the 5th century. 
In the ancient church, churches kind of gathered together. They gathered regionally. They had classes. <laughs> and they, they, they gathered together ecumenically. They had synods. They had these councils. And they recorded for us as Christians what we are to believe and confess. And they gathered together in the 5th century after a huge debate in the Council of Orange and so forth, and affirm the doctrine of predestination. And then the church deforms from that doctrine, but the Reformation affirms this doctrine. Even Luther. So we may not say, hey, you know what? There's debate on this. Or others interpret it differently. So I can go my own way. And so here is an important rule for us. Just because someone disagrees with the church doesn't mean that truth is relative and we can do what we want, believe what we want. We're reformed. We're not Americans. Well, we are Americans. You can be an American when you pay your taxes. Not when you tithe. You could dump tea in the bay as an American. Actually, you can't because you're a Christian. <laughs> Fortunately, you have to give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Sometimes I want to dump tea, though. That's my flesh. So is double predestination biblical? And biblically is key. Which is what we get from Paul. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, notice here, Paul now contrasts verse 14, we say, what do we say? Now he says, he says. And notice here, Paul doesn't appeal to the word of God, even though it is the word of God. He actually appeals to the audible voice of God. What does God's, what did God actually say audibly? Verse 15, he said it to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here Paul simply thinks God's thoughts after him as he does cite the word of God, because this is Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. And in context, in Exodus chapter 33, Israel had sinned with the golden calf. We know the story, right? Moses up on the mountain of Sinai, he's taken way too long. The church begins to doubt and comes to Aaron and asks for a Yahweh after their own image. So they create this golden calf and Aaron says, here's your God. He will lead you. And in Exodus 33, God, having seen this, condemns Israel and promises to leave them. He is going to leave them. He is not going to go with them. He is not going to take them into the promised land. And then so Moses acts as a mediator for Israel. And he asks God, he intercedes for Israel. And he asks God not to leave his people. And we hear Moses say to God in Exodus 33, 12, listen, Moses said to the Lord, Quote, see you, see you say to me, Lord, you said to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And so Moses is basically asking the Lord, you said you would bring this people. Obviously, 
these people have sinned. And obviously you say you're leaving us, but who? You've promised. You've promised me a people to be with me, to go with me. Don't forsake your promise. At least bring some into the land. And God answers in Exodus 33, 19. And he said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, which is God's covenantal name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And God answers Moses here in this text saying, I will bring some into the promised land. And the answer really is Romans 9.13. Jacob I have loved. I will bring some into the promised land. But not all. For Esau I hated. The answer for Moses and the answer for Paul is double predestination. The Bible says yes. Is double predestination biblical? Yes. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will compassion on whom I have compassion. God will be merciful to the elect. The answer, does God elect? The answer, yes. What about Scripture. God says so, but what about Scripture? So Paul says in verse 17, for the Scripture says. Notice he says in verse 15, God says. Now Paul looks to Scripture. Scripture says. Scripture says that God had a purpose in Pharaoh. Verse 17, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh. God said to Moses, Scripture says to Pharaoh. For this very purpose. I have raised you up. God raised up Pharaoh. Where did he raise him up? He raised him up to heaven. Raised him up to bless him. Or did he raise him up for judgment? And did he not die by the hand of God who withheld the Red Sea for Israel? but then let go of the Red Sea for Pharaoh? He could have held the Red Sea back for Pharaoh if it was Jacob I loved. God raised him up for wrath that I might show my power in you, that his wrath, his vengeance, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God raised him up for judgment. We call that reprobation. And so far in verse 14 we have, we say, we say one thing, flesh. But contrast that to God's word. God says yes to election and scripture says yes to reprobation. The flesh says one thing and the Bible another. The Bible basically says here, is God unjust in electing some to salvation? And the answer is by no means. Why? Because God says so. The scripture also says, is God unjust in reprobating some to hell? The Bible says by no means. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Why? Because the Bible says so. 
They might not like the answer, might not appeal to curiosity and wonder, but God says so. Now, you could deny what God says, but you'd really be only agreeing to the flesh and ultimately agreeing to the ways of the world. It's no doubt that those who deny predestination are often those who follow after the flesh in, in ways that are so easy to see, especially in worship. Their worship is filled with the love of the world and the culture is infiltrated and the theology that comes from the pulpit is infiltrated and it's all about your best life now and it's all about what you do and, and it's all about God gives but God does not take away. You know, God gives. It's Job, right? Only part of it. God gives. Jacob I loved. But even for those Jacob, even for those Jacobs, God takes away. Not because of hatred, but because of love. We don't like that. The flesh doesn't like the God takes away part. That God's ways are not our ways. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And it's here, this verse, it is here where the Arminian's eisegesis, his reading into the text, really shines. He's really good here. Because he'll say, well, this hardening here... He'll read this. It says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And the Armenian says, well, actually, the hardening here, if you go back, you see that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Because the Old Testament talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And so really what's happening is God looks down the quarters of time. Right? And he looks down the quarters of time, and he sees Pharaoh hardening his heart. He sees that Pharaoh, nah, doesn't really add up. Pharaoh really doesn't please God. Pharaoh's only after his own appetites and so forth. So God says, okay, I'm just going to, nope, not you. Not you. But then the flip side is, but oh man, look at Jacob. Oh, look at Israel over there. Oh man, they're so beautiful and they're just so good. Chris, when you start reading the Old Testament, you're like, man, this Israel people, they're not so good. <laughs> Especially when you look at Jacob and Esau. Who has their act together when you read the Old Testament? Read it. Go back and read Jacob and Esau. Who has their act together? Who comes back from exile to someone who's got a kingdom, basically, and doing really well for himself? And who actually accepts his brother in exile with open arms and loves him? Who's the one who's afraid to go back to his brother? And who's the one who only has what he has because he cheated? We're told that God chooses winners. He looks down the quarters of time and he chooses winners. Oh, man, it's so good to be a winner, is it not? Everybody, hallelujah. Amen. Now let's sing some cheesy song and celebrate. That makes the flesh glad. But there are many problems here. First, theologically. Think about it. Okay, put your thinking caps on for a moment. Love the Lord God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If God is omniscient, he knows all things. Omniscient. He knows all things. And that's what the quarters of time suggest. That's good, right? It suggests that he's omniscient. And we say, amen, he's omniscient. But as he looks down the quarters of time and he sees Jacob choosing one thing, isn't the future 
determined? If God knows you're going to choose him and elects you for it, are you not locked into those quarters of time? Aren't you not locked into God's omniscience and what you will do? Are you not then free, as the Armenians suggest? Hey, you're free? Because some Armenians will say, well, yeah, okay, I see your problem. Yeah, that is a problem. Okay, so we can surprise God. God gets surprised. He looks down the quarters of time, and all of a sudden when the time hits and the time, and you do something else, he's like, well, wait, what did you just do? You did the opposite of what I saw. You then have to limit God's foreknowledge. You have to limit God's power. And you kind of have to raise up man's ability at the same time, right? To get outside of those locked gate, the locked gate of omniscience. But the second problem is biblical. The text is clear. When you look here at this text, the text is clear that God's hardening is the basis for Pharaoh's hard heart. Verse 17, he says, I, God, the subject, Pharaoh, the object... I, the subject, have raised up the object. I, the subject, have power over the object. I am showing my power in you. You're the predicate. Pharaoh's the predicate. He's the tool. Or as Paul will go on to later add, he's the pottery. And God's the potter. Make sure I get that right. Yeah, he's, he's the pottery. He's the cup. God's the potter. The Armenian wants to become the potter. Make God the pot. For this purpose, he says, for this purpose, I have raised you up. Now look at verse 18. The Verse 18 is whomever he wills. Whomever he wills makes God the prior cause of both election and reprobation. It's God's will. It's his freedom. His freedom to show mercy is the same freedom to reprobate. And the text doesn't allow you to limit either the elect or the reprobate. And not just here, but all over the Bible. For example, Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose. The Lord has made everything. There's nothing outside of God's making, outside of God's creation, outside of his omniscience, outside of his omnipotence. The Lord made everything for its purpose. And we can say amen to that. We like that. What do we say of that? Oh, amen. That's good. God's in control. But now the next clause. Even the wicked for the day of evil. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Even the wicked for the day of evil. Now another Armenian trick here is to say that this hardening doesn't have to do with salvation. This isn't a salvation hardening. Therefore, it has nothing to do with, like, salvation. What does it have to do with? I don't know, but it's not that. <laughs> but what happened to Pharaoh at the Red Sea? It was judgment. It was wrath. And judgment is the point of the context. Drop down to verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Destruction is key. The opposite of destruction is what? Deliverance. Jacob, I have delivered. Esau, I have destroyed. And not 
in life, Esau was blessed in life through common grace. This is eschatological love and hatred. In double predestination, Paul says here, by appealing to God's actual voice and by appealing to God's word, he is proving that double predestination is biblical. Is double predestination biblical? It is. Now I want to ask one more question. Is it good? And this might be the more important question. Well, it's helpful for us. I shouldn't say more important. Biblical is always the more important question. But is it good? Maybe this is the pastoral question. That's how I should frame it. This is the pastoral question. Is it good? And if so, how is it good? And before I answer that, we must first recognize this truth. And we must never forget this truth. God is just. He is holy. He is righteous. He is good. Because he is just, righteous, good, he hates evil, he hates wickedness, he hates sin. You get angry when someone takes advantage of the weak, right? Do you hate when someone takes advantage of the weak? Rightfully so. You get angry. Well, God gets angry, but even more so. He hates unrighteousness. He hates evil. He hates wickedness. And so he's just to condemn. And we are condemned. We ourselves are sinners. We ourselves are evil. Paul even says in Romans 7, he says, There's nothing good within me. He says, for 19, verse 19, 7, 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do. I keep on doing, it says. I keep on doing. He says, because sin dwells, verse 20, sin dwells within me. He says, I find it a law. It is a law. When I want to do good, I do evil because evil is close at hand. It's my heart. We're sinners. And God is just to condemn. Now here's where election comes in. Here's where we begin to hear the goodness of the Lord. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 5. Even as he chose us, that word there in the Greek is the Greek word electoi, where we get the word election. Even as he electoid us, even as he elected us in him, in Christ, the antecedent of that pronoun is Christ. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He doesn't say, hey, he chose us because we're holy and blameless. He has chose us before we've done anything good or bad to be holy. Actually, he's chosen us knowing we are bad to be holy, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then Paul will go on to explain the purpose of that will. It is the glory of God. It is our justification. It is our salvation. It is this righteousness that is not our own, but is freely given. And so the elect, and here's the truth, here's the goodness of God. Sinners, elect sinners. The Reformation always puts that predicate when it talks about justified. Justified sinners, elect sinners. 
believing sinners. Always remember that part. The elect sinners, without deserving it at all, without deserving it at all, out of mere grace, God gives them, God imputes, God grants to the sinner the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if we've never sinned nor been a sinner. God freely gives us the righteousness of Christ so that in the place of wrath, in the place of fear, we have hope. In the place of wrath, we have love. In the freedom of God to be merciful. God's freedom to be merciful on whomever he chooses. God's freedom to be merciful on whomever he chooses is the standard of salvation. If you take away that freedom, if you take away that freedom, God is not good. But you better be. We then become co-sovereigns, creators of our own destiny. And without this freedom, there is no mercy, only compulsion. And you better be good for goodness sakes. Better start keeping those nice lists. If you ever make that naughty list, well, you're done. Not just Cole and the stocking children. Take away this freedom and you take away the love of God. That is what you take away. Take away this freedom and you take away the love of God. Because God loves, therefore we love. We love because God first loved us. And the good news of this love, this free love, this sovereign love is that he is free to send his son, his son who comes, who came and died on the cross for our sins, a son who paid for the wrath of God in our place that we don't have to face that wrath and who fulfilled that satisfaction of wrath in our place. A son who freely died for sinners. As Paul says in Romans, he died for the ungodly, the just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God by his life and death. He suffered body and soul that you might not suffer the wrath of God. This is the freedom of God. It is his love to choose, to love. It is this love that makes salvation free. And that's Paul's point. Verse 16, Paul says, So then... Because God is free, because God is sovereign, he says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. You know, that whole quarters of time thing, I was like, did you even read verse 16? Stop it with your quarters of time. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. And in particular, God, who has mercy. You see, friends, the result of double predestination is salvation by grace alone. And you cannot have it without it. You cannot have salvation without God's sovereign freedom. And that freedom is the origin of our salvation. The origin of our salvation is mercy and mercy alone. So salvation does not depend on willing, human willing, human running. An election makes sure, election makes sure it guarantees that we do nothing to merit salvation. We do nothing to earn God's love. 
We who are inclined to evil, inclined to evil, the Heidelberg says, even though we are inclined to all evil, nevertheless, because of election, because not deserving it at all, God promises us his love, nothing but love. So no quarters of time will save you. No quarters of time will lose you. All we have because of election is God's free and eternal love. Therefore, we cannot lose it. It's a gift. It is not by works. It is not something you maintain as if to lose. Free means free. And free means assurance as Christ promised us. Turn over to John's gospel and we're done. Almost done. When the minister says that, now he has to be done. John 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Drop down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is sure. Whomever the Father gives, the Father will call, the Father will draw, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's God's doing the work of salvation here. And there's perseverance in God's hands. Drop over to chapter 10, beginning verse 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And I, the father, am one. Here is the love of God. Here is the free love of God. Eternal life. And you will never perish. You are held by hands that are greater than your hands, a will that is greater than yours, a volition that's more powerful, and a love. And so we look to the love of God and we look to the love of the cross for our salvation and not our love. Because there is no higher cause in our salvation than God's free grace. And those who've been shown God's mercy will forever and always receive nothing but perpetual kindness and the love of God from here on now into eternity. This is double predestination. It is biblical and it is good. Soli Deo Gloria. And it is for the glory of God alone. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.